Morning. Great to have you here this morning. So uh, the New Testament gives us a picture of the way the church is intended to look and doesn't always look this way. And so it's a good time for us this morning to be reminded that the New Testament describes the church in this way with Jesus Christ as the head of a church, not any individual man unless that man is Jesus. So Jesus is intended to be the head, and then underneath Jesus, as the chief shepherd, there are under-shepherds that the New Testament calls overseers or elders. And the elders at Christian Family Chapel are these men who are behind me here. This is Jeff Curry, Phil Hartman, Brad Howell, Tony Anderson, Jim Bronsick, James Purser, and Frost Weaver. Brett Johns, also an elder, not able to be with us this morning. Now, the reason it's so important for us to understand that is no individual is the head other than Jesus. As elders, we serve under his leadership, and it's under his leadership that we have accountability for this local church to make sure that it is fed the word of God, led by the spirit of God, and protected from the spiritual enemy. That's the role that we have been given. In fact, the scripture says that we are accountable for your souls. It's a role that, quite frankly, few are really interested in playing. But part of the role that these elders have is identifying any individual in the body who is biblically qualified and we believe has been identified, appointed by the Spirit to serve in this capacity. Elders at chapel don't serve for three years or five years. As long as they remain qualified and aspire to the role, they serve as long as the Lord allows them. So we are appointing by the leading of the Spirit, a new man to join this team. And so I want to invite Dave McKee and his wife Michelle to come up. The process has been going on for years in the fact that they've been in the body, growing and serving and leading. But in the last six months specifically, David and Michelle have been looking at what the Scripture has to say about the elder role. And determining they and us is the spirit leading in this direction. And we believe he is. The qualification to serve as an elder in a local church is in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. I'm going to read for us from 1 Timothy 3. It says, it's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer slash elder. It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be, and here are the qualifications, above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And here's why. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert 
so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So it's quite a standard because it's quite a responsibility. We don't take this lightly. This is not political. This is not popularity. This is spiritual qualifications and a sense of the Spirit of God raising someone up, aspiring. That is, placed in their heart that this is who God has made me to be, to take the responsibility of leading and shepherding the flock. And so, with a lot of prayer and evaluation, Dave and Michelle are prepared to step into this role. And so, we want to lay our hands on them as elders, asking God's anointing power for all that he has for them. So we're going to pray, Dave, if you would kneel and if you would stand. And South as well, if you'd stand. And Frost Weaver's the elder of all elders. (laughs) You know what that means, don't you? (laughs) Is going to lead us in prayer. What does that mean? I'm old. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come together as a body together today to, to stand with you and, and uh, as we lay hands on this man, Dave McKee, Lord, and, and uh, we look at your scripture as Doug has shared and, and don't take it lightly. And, and the overall role of this man and for this team, Father, is to keep watch over the souls of this body. And we see that in Hebrews 13. And the next phrase there is those who will give an account. And again, as Doug shared, Lord, we're not exactly sure what that account looks like, but Father, there is a responsibility and an accountability. So as we ask Dave, why would he want to do this, Father, and and the rest of these men? The answer is no one, Father, but we see in Acts 20 the answer really to that question. For your word says, to be on guard for yourselves and all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer, to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. So, Father, over these many months, we sought the direction of the Holy Spirit. And, Father, as Dave and Michelle, his wife, prayed about this, as we continue to pray about this, Lord, we were seeking the Holy Spirit to to guide and direct us in, in this decision. And at the end of the day, Father, Dave answered that call, believing that truly the Holy Spirit has called him to this ministry for this season. And, Father, as we prayed also, Father, we had the confirmation of the Holy Spirit in unity that this man was being called by the Holy Spirit to serve in this role. So, Father, as, as a body, there's also a responsibility. We see that in Hebrews 13 as well. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls. So, Father, there's also a dual responsibility here. So, Father... I know as we have met with Dave and watched him over these many years, Father, that he has a true love for you. Father, he has a servant's heart, and he also has a humble heart. He has a desire to shepherd this body. So, Father, we ask that your spirit would guard him and his family uh, to watch over them as he steps into this role. Father, it's it's a privilege. Let us do this with joy, Father, and also... Father, as a team of men and for the staff that all that we do, Lord, we want to be in step with you as we go into the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All right, thank you. You may have a seat. I appreciate it as Frost prayed. There, there really is a relationship here. This is not just guys who sit in a room and make decisions, though they bear the weight of some very important decisions. There is a shepherding relationship where they have an accountability to lead. And as you choose membership here at the chapel, you are choosing an accountability to follow and to submit to their leadership as unto the Lord. We genuinely believe it's not theoretical at all. It's real. We believe in the headship of Jesus Christ of Christian Family Chapel, not an individual human person. So many churches known by the individual who yakety yak yaks from the front. We want to be known as a body who is fully devoted, spirit-empowered Christ followers, Jesus as our head. So with that reminder, on Easter Sunday, we began looking at Jesus, the head of this church, the Son of God, our Savior. And we started in Mark 1, And we started knowing that the gospel of Mark, the letter that he wrote about the life of Jesus, would not have many speeches, hardly any speeches at all. It would be filled with Jesus encounters. In other words, it would be filled with one occasion after another where Jesus would meet all sorts of different types of people in all sorts of different circumstances and situations, and in the process, discovering the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, the power of him to transform a human life. And so just since Easter, we've gotten through Mark chapter one, and we've had these five encounters. We've had him encounter the unseen world. We had him encounter new followers. We had him encounter demons. We had him encounter competing needs, This village wanted him, this village wanted him, and we had him encounter the desperate. In all of those occasions, though, there was a singular theme that has been running through all of chapter one, and it's possible that you've missed it. And so, even though it's taken us many weeks to just get through chapter one, we're not finished. We're going to look at chapter one from a different perspective this morning, because there's been a running theme. I think you're going to see it pretty quickly as we look at it. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Mark chapter 1, and I'm going to look at a number of verses throughout the chapter. You look for the running theme, beginning in verse 10, where it says, immediately coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Drop down to verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. To verse 18. Immediately, they, that is Simon and Andrew, left their nets and followed Jesus. Verse 20. Immediately, he, Jesus, called James and John. Verse 21. Immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he began to teach. Verse 28. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere. Verse 29, immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house. Verse 30, immediately they spoke to Jesus about Peter's mother-in-law. 
Verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him. And verse 43, Jesus immediately sent him away. Now, for the really, really sharp among us, what's the theme? Yeah, it's, it's so obvious that you go, at times, if you go back and there were 10 of them there, 10 immediately, and at times it goes, it seems like Mark's forcing the word in there. Really? Did you need to say immediately at each occasion? And the answer to that is yes, because he's making a point, right? Repetition is for the sake of making a point. So what's his point? Well, his point is this. First, I notice in all of the occasions, not one of them, is it literally a spoken word. You'll never find the word immediately in one of the quotes. Rather than a spoken word, it's a descriptive word. Immediately he did. Immediately he saw this. Immediately they went. Immediately they shared. Immediately he said. It's descriptive. So if it's immediately this and immediately that, but it's never the spoken word, it's the descriptive word, what's the point? What's the point if you say, I need you to do this immediately? What's the point? There is the point of urgency and responsiveness, right? It's immediately. How many times, I'm sure you can relate to this if you've been blessed with kids. <laughs> I need you to do this. Okay. No, no. Immediately. Not like when you get around to it, because when you get around to it, I'll be dead. <laughs> so I need you to do it immediately. There is a... a urgency and a responsiveness. So when, according to Jackie, it was child number five, when she was very, very pregnant and almost due, we were in a building. Wednesday night, I'm teaching a Bible study. About 20 minutes in, she's sitting on the back row and she goes, interrupts the Bible study and says, Doug, I need you now. Her water had broken on the back row. And I said, baby, I got my study to finish you. <laughs> yeah, no, you didn't say that. No, otherwise somebody else would be talking because I'd be dead. No, I didn't, I, I didn't say, well, just hold up. I, I was like Tom Ullum, who was sitting beside her, who said afterwards, I have that effect on lots of women. Um, <laughs> I said, Tom, you're in charge. And we went straight to the car and Baptist South didn't exist and we started heading downtown. But I realized, wow, it's like after eight now, I didn't get dinner. The cafeteria at the hospital is going to be closed. Baby, do you mind if we stop at Hardy's on the way? And she goes, sure. And so we did. And they were slow. But it struck me, child number one, we got to go. I was driving down San Jose at 85 miles an hour because I thought 
is the policeman really going to get me? She was in the back seat, pounding on the window. Take her on, Mr. Officer, you can have at it. So I was flying, baby number one, baby number five. Can we stop and get some Hardee's? There's a level of urgency and responsiveness that sometimes is there appropriately and sometimes it should be there and it's, it's not. So what Mark is doing in, in chapter one is he is emphasizing there is an urgency and a responsiveness that marks the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. Here's the question. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest, What degree of urgency and responsiveness is present in your spiritual life? That's a pretty big question. But it's the question, I think, that Mark 1 compels us to ask. If somebody was writing a chronicle of my life, would there be immediately ever in the writing? Would there be, in other words, would there be a level of urgency and responsiveness that would characterize our spiritual lives? Or do we have a lot of stop at Hardee's in our spiritual life? So, I know you don't like to do this, but would you be willing to give yourself a number? Not call it out loud. But is it a one? A four? A seven? In other words, when, when the Word of God speaks you urgently respond? Or are you a kid to your heavenly father who goes, yeah, and then never get around to it? What's the level? And if you'll come up with a number, then ask yourself, what's keeping it from being a 10? That's a great question. Because for me, it was my belly. (laughs) I'll be hungry. Because I've been through this before. You're going to be in labor all night. What's, what's keeping? There's things that keep us, even in good intentions, there's things that keep good intentions from becoming reality, from us responding to the Lord. So I want us, with that theme demonstrated in the life of Jesus from Mark 1, uh, this morning we're going to go outside of the Gospel of Mark and look at the scriptures that give us some wisdom, and I think really simple, practical wisdom regarding cultivating a lifestyle of immediately. In other words, don't be confused by that, a lifestyle of urgency and responsiveness. Because I doubt any of us who have a clear view of ourselves are giving ourselves tens. So how do we go from a four to a five or a seven to an eight? In urgency and responsiveness, like demonstrated in the life and ministry of Jesus. So cultivating a lifestyle of immediately. First, I got to recognize, and I'll show the scripture to you in a moment. I have to recognize, and you know this expression, delayed obedience is what? Yeah, to clarify it, it's actually current disobedience. And I like to think of it that way. Well, I'll let you write it down. Delayed obedience, we can tend to think, well, I am obeying, I just haven't actually done it yet. <laughs> I intend to do it. But as long as I intend to do it, but haven't done it, I remain in current disobedience. 
Now you go, well, my mom said that. Well, here's where your mom got it from. (laughs) James chapter 4, verse 17 says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. That's really straightforward. Think of your life as a, as a spiritual life as a journey, steps, steps, you know. And as we grow in Christ, as we read the scriptures, there's, there's things that we learn, not just in our head, that, that God calls us to do something. And as soon as we know what to do, we're accountable. And the point between when we know what to do and we actually do it, that gap right there, that's disobedience. And so we, we sing that song, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come fill this place, flood the atmosphere. But let's make that song real. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here is saying, I'm going to stay in step. I'm not going to just know the right thing to do and then have this gap sitting on the couch so I actually do it, I, I, when I know it, I'm going to respond to it. I have to have a, a responsiveness, an urgency when I know the right thing to actually do it. Now, have you ever said, I know what I need to do, I just need a little time? Most of us, I know what I need to do. I just need some time. And sometimes if, if you have a spouse, your spouse will go, have you gotten around to that yet? And it's like, yeah, I hate when you ask me that question. Because it's like, I know what I'm supposed to do. And I know I'm delaying. And I don't like when you tell me I'm delaying. But I am delaying. Why are we delaying? I need a little more time. I just need to... I need to get things straight in my head. Here's what I honestly, though, have discovered. That trying to warm up to obedience is usually how we become comfortable with our disobedience. I don't like that about myself, but my delayed obedience is actually not me warming up to do what I need to do. It's getting comfortable not doing. In a practical way, here's how I've seen this work at CFC in too many, honestly, really sad times. Marriage is struggling, and one of the spouses says, I know we need to fix our marriage. I just need some time. I need some space, and we separate. And when I go sit with a man who has chosen to leave, I know what I need to do. He's not warming up to obedience. He's usually, vast majority of, my experience tells me, the vast majority of time, he's getting comfortable with his disobedience. He's just, he doesn't want to divorce. To divorce. Just the little steps that, until I get comfortable. That's just one example. But think about in your own life where you are delaying obedience. Straight out of James 4. You know the right thing to do, but you're not doing it. 
And ask yourself, really, what am I waiting for? Oh, I'm waiting for the right time. Problem with that is it's just never the right time. It's never the right time. If it's something between you and your spouse, well, if things are bad, it's not the right time. And if things are good, it's not the right time. (laughs) You ever notice that? Because you don't want to make it worse and you don't want to ruin the good. (laughs) So you just never quite get around to it. Delayed obedience, current disobedience. Current disobedience usually leads to continual disobedience. Did you follow that? Delayed obedience leads to current disobedience. Current disobedience usually leads to continual disobedience. We don't warm up to it. We get comfortable with where we are staying. So, maybe, maybe there's something right now. You have it in your head. You know you need to do. Maybe it was just from last week on what Tony talked about overcoming habitual sin and you sat in your seat and you thought, I need to do that. But you hadn't got around to it. It's not going to get easier. There is a, a sense where we think we're warming up and we're not. We're getting comfortable with our disobedience. So, There is a responsiveness, an urgency. You know what to do? Do you need to go ask for forgiveness? Do you need to grant forgiveness? Do you need to go tell somebody you're sorry? Do you need to go share your faith with somebody? You've been prompted, then you chickened out. You know, we were looking at Jesus' encounter and getting up early and having a quiet time and you sat in here and you thought, man, I'm going to start doing a quiet time. You did it for four days and you've stopped since. See, there's, there's a responsiveness to the word of God demonstrated in the life of Jesus that we get comfortable not having. We've been, I've, been, I've done this rodeo before. We can stop at Hardy's. I've been walking with the Lord a long time. I can't respond to everything. We stop being urgently responsive to the Lord. Okay, second wisdom, and it's in James 4 as well, just a few verses earlier, where he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Now, he says, come now, you who say this. What he's really saying is, come now, stop saying this. (laughs) This is a stop it moment. You who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go and do this and, then, and then do that. Why? Why stop it? You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It really genuinely is true that all of us can live today based on what we think will happen tomorrow, but we don't know that tomorrow will take place or that we will be present tomorrow if tomorrow takes place, or that the opportunity that happens today will still be available tomorrow. You, you get his point. The, the lifestyle of immediately is rooted in this, an understanding and an appreciation for the uniqueness of today. You see, only, you can only do today what today holds. Jesus says... Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. But therefore, 
Today has unique trouble and unique opportunity. Tomorrow may or may not hold the same. You can only do today, <laughs> today. And, and that sounds so obvious, and we've all heard our mom say it. Don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. And we know that, but we have tend to translate, why do today what we could do tomorrow? <laughs> that seems more fun. If I could do it tomorrow, let's just do it tomorrow. It misses the biblical truth that James is calling them to in chapter 4 that says, hey, there's a uniqueness of today and an uncertainty of tomorrow that ought to bring about an urgency and a responsiveness. Do you ever have a regret? Sure, all of us have regrets. And as I look at my own regrets, here's what I've discovered. Regret is often the fruit of a decision rooted in the assumption of a tomorrow. I made a decision thinking, well, I'll do it tomorrow, or I'll have that opportunity, and then it goes away. It vanishes, just what James said in James chapter 4, and then I look back and I think, oh, if I should have, I would have, or I could have, but I can't because I missed the appreciation that only today can be lived today. I can't do it again tomorrow. Tomorrow I have new opportunity, new, tru new trouble. Responsive. Told the story of years ago of taking Clayton, my oldest, out to Ravencrest in Estes Park, Colorado. Dropping him off there. And after a couple days together, the whole orientation ceremony kind of closed, and then there was refreshments, and he went and met with some new friends, started playing basketball, and, and I was talking to some other folks, and it was kind of time for me to go, and he was still playing ball, and I didn't really want to take him away from new friends, and so I was like, hey, Clay, and waved to him, and he waved, and I was like, eh, that wasn't very special, you know, kind of waving goodbye, we're not seeing one another for six months, and so got in the car, and I'm driving down to Estes Park, down 36 dark, and there's a huge, as there are more elk in Estes Park than people, it seems like, there's a huge elk on the road. I came around pitch black, and it was right there, slammed on the brakes, and just missed this elk, and my heart was pounding, 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 and I was like, thank you, Lord, and then I did a U-turn and went straight back up the hill, grabbed Clay off the basketball court, and said, there is no waving, <laughs> goodbyes. I want to put my hands on you and pray for you because who knows what the next six months will hold. Now, I think about that because how many times do you never walk out of your house in the morning and think, if that was my last interaction, do I want that to be my last one? Or would I have regret? Well, I'll fix it when I get home. Regret is rooted in the assumption, false assumption. I always have a tomorrow. Specifically, we started, maybe you'll remember this, we started 2017 with this passage, first Sunday. We said, let's mark 2017 with this truth. The end of all things is near. We have no idea if we have a tomorrow. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober Spirit for the purpose of prayer. See, I'm challenged. If I knew I didn't have a tomorrow, would I really pray about what I'm going to pray about tonight when I go to bed? That would radically change, would it not? 
But we get into these assumptions that we have lots of tomorrows and it impacts our lack of urgency in prayer. But if we didn't know, if we knew we didn't have tomorrow, it would impact not only our prayer, but also this above keep fervor, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. The, the reality of the uniqueness of today and the uncertainty of tomorrow ought to impact our relationships. Jesus specifically said this. If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, in other words, you have a broken relationship, leave your offering there before the altar and go. Go do what? (laughs) Go first. Don't miss that word. First. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come present your offering. And that's so clear. How many of us, quite frankly, it'd be a little frightening, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of us live in the broken relationship with a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter and a co-worker, a church member? There's a brokenness of relationship. We know it. It's awkward. But we come in and we sing, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. And you know, I think if we were really attentive, he would go, well, if I'm welcome here, how about you go make a phone call? Or you go send an email? Or you walk across the room and seek to restore a broken relationship? Jesus makes it really powerful. The the whole gift at the altar, that's worship. And he's going, well, nothing, nothing trumps worship of God. Correct. And reconciling broken relationships is worship of God. So don't go through the motions and avoid the relationship. There's a lot of folks here this morning. And each of you are thinking your own world, appropriately so right now. There is a broken relationship. I really am genuinely encouraging you. Resolve. Resolve it. Seek reconciliation. Don't get comfortable with not doing. See, what happens is at first we feel that. And then once we feel it so long, we stop feeling it. And we just start living with it. First, I've, I ask myself at times, what would the, the vibrancy of the life of our church be if we were deeply committed to not allow relational brokenness to just simmer below the surface of our lives. Now, let me acknowledge something, because you're going, you have no idea about this person. You're right, I don't. But the scripture says, well, sorry, I I skipped three, went to four. I'm coming back to three. You didn't miss it. (laughs) I skipped three, went to four. A, A lifestyle of urgency and responsiveness is a refusal to live with relational brokenness. 
And if you go back and read chapter one, there's a couple of occasions where there's relational brokenness between Jesus and his disciples. He doesn't ignore it. He confronts it. It does say in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. In other words, it does take two to reconcile. But sometimes we talk ourselves out of doing our part because we've already concluded what they will or won't do. Right? Well, it won't. I know what I should do, but it won't do any good. I've tried that before. As much as it depends upon you, do your part. Who knows what your humility will do to their heart? Who knows what your obedience will do to their heart? Who knows what your willingness to take initiative will do in their heart? You don't know. All we know is this, that I want to remain responsive to the Lord. I don't want to live in that area of, I know what I should do, I just don't do it. I don't want to live in that area of of what the Bible calls grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit, where He dwells within me. His Word speaks to my heart. Like, like I'm, I'm confident for lots and lots of you, he's speaking to your heart right now. There's, there's somebody you have in your mind, but there's this battle, this raging in your mind of all the reasons I know I should, but, and it's this debate that happens. Jesus demonstrates, no, don't put it off. Delayed obedience, current Disobedience, current disobedience leads to what? Continual. We become spiritually numb. And in relational, because it's hard, because we're afraid, we learn to live in relational brokenness and it quenches the spirit of God in our own life and it quenches the spirit of God in the body life. Let's do what we need to do. Now, Back to three. Earlier in James, he said, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like, and here's a great picture, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. How many of you looked in a mirror this morning? Oh, come on now. The rest, yeah. If you didn't, you should have. That's not mean. <laughs> you looked and went, wow, I'm glad I did. <laughs> you wouldn't want me to show up having not looked in a mirror. So uh, we, we know this. This is a great picture. Who looks at his natural face in a mirror? Once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So the point's obvious. You look in the mirror and you go, wow, hard night. And it told you to do something. But he gives this picture. A person looks in the mirror. They see all their hair on this side of the head pointing in this direction. And they go, wow, I should do something about that. But then they walk away and they forget that their hair is all going that way. You don't go to church. You don't, come to, you don't go to work looking that way. You care 
what your hair looks like. So you look in the mirror, and then you do something about it. And some of you are going, no, I don't really care. Look at my hair. Yeah, you care so much you like your hair to look that disheveled look. But all of us, all of us think about what do we see in the mirror, and we tend to try to fix what's broken. <laughs> That's the point of looking in the mirror. But the spiritual realm is, here's the mirror. And we look, and we see what life looks like lived like Jesus, and how he encounters people, and his responsiveness. And we go, ooh, wow, I look a little ugly. And then we head off to lunch and forget. We don't, we don't do anything. I, I find it, and, and I'm talking about me here, I find it uh, strange, disconcerting that I care more about my hair than what people, than, and people think about my hair than my own spiritual life. Because I'm willing to do with this what I'm generally not willing to do in my natural life. That doesn't make any sense. I know that logically, but it's the routine that all of us can get in. We're responsive to the natural mirror and become non-responsive to the spiritual mirror. So here's, here's the way it ought to happen for us, according to James. But one who looks intently at the perfect law. So not just looking in the mirror, one of those magnifying mirrors, which is crazy because some things don't need magnified. <laughs> but this is a, an intently in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and doesn't forget about it, abides, remains, not having become a forgetful hearer, but here, here's what we're striving for. Here's the cultivating of a lifestyle of responsiveness and urgency, an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. The blessing of God in a person's life is not a lottery system. Ah, we'll see who pops up. Okay, you get blessed, you get blessed, you get blessed, and you get blessed. No, the blessing of God is upon the person who cultivates effectual doing. I was so struck, um, lots of you have interacted with Bill Jones, the president of CIU, and I get to work with him on the board. He is moving from president to chancellor. So he wrote his final letter as president, and he sent it to us first as a board, and he talked just about what the Lord has done in the last 10 years. But I was far more struck by the thousands of lives he's impacted in the last 10 years. And I had this in my reply to him, this thought of, man, he is so blessed. And then I was in the scriptures here, and I thought, it's not just willy-nilly. God chose to bless him. He's a man that I've genuinely experienced as an effectual doer. 
He doesn't, think, he doesn't live in his head. He has a PhD, but most PhD... Uh, I won't say that. <laughs> it's temptation to know a lot and not be able to keep up with the doing. And, and he's a guy who's a doer. According to the scripture. And it hit me. Ah, there it is. God's blessed him. Are you an effectual doer? Or have you cultivated a lifestyle of reading and forgetting? Or just putting off? Becoming deceived. This is what the, the warning is. The temptation is to deceive myself with what I know. <laughs> but I didn't actually apply. We become deceived. And so people will say, really, Doug? I've already, I already heard that passage. We've already studied that book. I know that truth. You've given that message. We become deceived by what we know, thinking maturity is knowing. Maturity is effectual doing. I, wanna, I don't want to deceive because I have knowledge, but that knowledge is apart from application. It's hard to keep up. I just want to acknowledge that. I've just thought back through 2017. I think the Lord spoke to lots of us in neighbortude. But how many of us had high big plans. And we thought, we ought to do this. And that's where it stopped. And pretty soon, we're not, it's just not going to be, oh, we're, we're going to get around to it. It's just going to become, oh yeah, I remember that. That was a good series. What does that mean? It was a good series? It was something to do. But it's hard to keep up, isn't it? But what if we really said, I want to create, cultivate a lifestyle that when I read the word of God, I seek to genuinely become an effectual doer, not just a forgetful hearer. My favorite, Mark 1. Here's my favorite section of Mark 1. It's a little weird, I know. But it's, it says, immediately the Spirit impelled him, Jesus, to go out into the wilderness. I love it because that word, impelled. Can you picture being impelled, that, that I, for whatever reason, I, the picture in my mind is the propeller on a boat. Well, vroom, that, 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 that baby's supposed to spin and it makes you go. That's Jesus, <laughs> impelled by the Spirit to go in the wilderness. Now, here's why it's my favorite in chapter one so far, because what's it say Next. And he was in the wilderness. Oh, you go, well, duh. No, not duh at all. He was impelled by the Spirit, and he was in the wilderness. How many of us have been impelled to go? Uh, and here we sit. That was a great sermon. 
Really? Doesn't seem like it's doing much. We think when we're moved, when we are motivated, when we have good discussion, we're, it's good. That's it's not the point. Impelled by the Spirit, and he was there. That's, that's the lifestyle I want to grow in. That I would hear, be impelled, and then do. It's simply what the Scripture calls learning to walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Not delaying and grieving, but obeying. Pursuing, sharing, seeking forgiveness, saying I'm sorry, walking in the Spirit. So, let me ask you a question. What's the Spirit impelling you to do this morning? Just, just pick your wilderness. What's he impelling you to do? Something specific. Is there a relationship to restore? Is there a delayed obedience that you know you need to take? Is there a truth that, that you know <laughs> you've been a forgetful here? The band's coming up because we're going to declare a response. But I don't want it just to be a song about a general response. I want you to have something specific in your mind that you know, oh, I need to go. Here's where he's propelling me. I won't make you say, but curious. Anybody specifically have something? Here's what I know. I have something specific in my mind. Anybody? Show me, show me your hand. Okay. Think for us. There are oftentimes specific things. Don't put it off. Don't stay stuck. The opposite. Run. Run. Be impelled to do. That's what I want us to declare in song. Would you stand and let's declare our intention to run.
So let me ask you a crazy question. Who runs into furnaces and dens of lions? You think about that? Nobody runs into that. You run away from that, which is why you've been running away from what you know you should do. Because it's hard and hot and uncomfortable. But they're impelled by the glory of God. A whole army sat on their hands while a giant mocked God. And a David showed up and impelled by the glory of God said, I'm not sitting on my hands. I'm going to run. And it literally says he ran at Goliath. So you have a Goliath. You've been sitting on your hands. Go run. His, burden, his commands are not burdensome. They're good. And you'll be blessed as you're an effectual doer. God bless.